election of 1800. Can we get back to politics? Please. Yo. Hello and welcome to our third bonus episode of Ballot to Talk About. Joining me as always is my co-host Chern and this time we will be unpacking further the upcoming US midterms and this serves as a nice um, complement to our main episode of the week just gone back. So if you have hopped over to join us for this special episode, welcome back to the conversation about the midterms and hopefully we'll be collectively unpacking some of the stories in the Senate and House side. So, Chern, are you ready to go? Well, we have made very few exceptions over the last two years of special episodes. We've done one on Canada, one on Germany, but a full-blown midterm election, I think, more than warrants us creating a special episode. Um, but yes, let's dive right into it. And I think the best place to start is, of course, the United States Senate, because not only is it evenly deadlocked at 50-50 and the Democrats control the chamber, simply because they control the White House and Senate President Ed is the Vice President, Kamala Harris. She has acted as a tie-breaking vote. Um, and not only that, is that the Senate has also important functions in particular to confirm executive nominations and Supreme Court nominations, which as we found out in the last, in the last term of President Trump over the last two years, is extremely important as well. For this election, 34 Class 3 senators are out for election, and that consists of 14 Democrats and 20 Republicans. There are also special elections to fill in California to fill out the remaining weeks of Kamala Harris's term, and Oklahoma to fill out Jim Inafoy's term under 2026, and he has resigned from the Senate. So therefore, there are 35 seats out of 100 up for grabs, and Republicans just need a net gain of one to control the chamber. So on paper, seems like an easy task, but there are some very interesting races playing out. And we'll start this conversation um, with some of the more interesting races. And I would like to begin in alphabetical order with Arizona. We're currently seeing Democratic Senator Mark Kelly, who is the wife of Gabrielle Giffords, who is, of course, a gun right, a, a gun control activist and a former Democratic representative. He was elected in 2020 in a special election. And that mm -hmm. was, and this is John McCain's seat, essentially, back in the day. Um, he is seeking a full term and he's running against Republican Blake Masters. So, Sam, Arizona voted Democrat in 2020. How do you see Mark Kelly's chances in this race? I see Mark Kelly as more likely than not to hold his seat in Arizona. I think, as we've talked about a few times, Arizona has in recent years increasingly been trending Democratic. And although Mark Kelly didn't win his Senate seat back in 2020 with the large margin we did originally anticipate, I feel like he has high enough approval and name recognition to win it a second time. Now, the added complication here is that there is a highly contentious governor race taking place in Arizona as well, with a Republican candidate who is a far better campaigner than the Senate opponent Mark Kelly is facing in Blake Masters. 
which is Carrie Lake, who has, she is a polished TV presenter. She is very right wing and is firing up the Republican base in Arizona, which Jeff Flake, the outgoing Arizona senator back in 2018, acknowledged was an increasingly right leaning Republican base. So having someone like Carrie Lake in this cycle, I think is firing up the Republicans and may end up bolstering the campaign of Blake Masters, who I think alone would have lost to Mark Kelly quite substantially. So that's where I think this race sits. And that's the added complication, which is, I think, uniquely in this cycle, these this governor and Senate race are actually acting in, in tandem, playing out in tandem. In fact, um, Carrie Lake and Blake Masters are almost campaigning as a joint ticket because there are campaign posters going up which says vote Lake and Blake. The same is not happening for Katie Hobbs and Mark Kelly. So it is an unusual Senate campaign, I think, in, in Arizona. I wonder, Sam, is Mark Kelly has a significant cash on hand advantage. What advantage do you think that will have here? Because... Yes, I think Kerry Lake has helped close the gap. But in the end, is the significant deficit that Blake Masters has going to be ultimately one that denies him the Senate seat, do you think? I think it will certainly play a role because the unique nature of Arizona is that it's a very large state geographically, but the population is, is centred in a handful of urban centres and then is sporadically spread around the rest of the state. So... A cash advantage simply helps you contact more people in a state as large and as um, dispersed as Arizona is. So I think that is helping Mark Kelly. Um, the other thing that works in Mark Kelly's favour, which doesn't work in the favour of the House Democrats, as I alluded to in our main podcast, is that his is a statewide race and it doesn't, it isn't really affected by gerrymandering. And that could benefit him because... There is a substantial Latin American population in Arizona, which has actually increased 350% since 2000. Um, and yes, we did see in 2020 some trends of particularly uh, Latino men um, supporting Donald Trump. They have had progressive tendencies in the past, and this sizable um, Latin American population actually could proved to be quite beneficial to Mark Kelly in this election, if he can reach them. Well, I think what has happened with the Hispanic vote is we see typically conservative Hispanics now vote Republican, when in the past they still voted Democratic. I haven't seen any evidence as yet, although we have certain races coming up in other Latino heavy populations like Nevada, New Mexico, that could pertain to a slight change in that pattern, but at the moment, I'm just not seeing it. And yes, they're so important, but the most important county in this race is Maricopa County, once again. It's where the majority of the population is. It's where Phoenix is. And whoever wins Maricopa County will probably win the state. So I think all eyes are still on that. The way I was going with the cash and advantage hand is you pointed to the Latino vote, which is, of course, very interesting. But I wonder if another constituency to watch the Native American vote in those reserves, it, the reason why you got me thinking is because in the vote in the in our main episode, you mentioned a congressional district, the Arizona Second District, 
a Trump-won district, but has a Democratic representative. It is also a congressional district in many Native Americans. And I wonder if Kelly's cash-on-hand advantage will mean that he is able to contact more people who live in this remote congressional district and who may be more activated to vote. So I just wonder if these small differences will in the end help him in what could be, and I'm certainly mm. Blake Masters is hoping on this, is that he's hoping to run on Kerry Lake's coattails, um, but Mark Kelly's significant cash in hand could prove that X factor that denies him that, um, denies him from be- go- from beating Kelly in the, in the end. Yeah, I think I can see a result in Arizona, which is a split ticket, where you have Kerry Lake winning the gubernatorial race and Mark Kelly win- winning the Senate race. Is that something you, you think is likely as well? I think that could be very likely, actually, to be honest. Um, because don't forget as well, is that people, when they vote for their governor and versus their senator, could have very different issues on their mind as well. Yes, the economy is obviously the overriding factor as well, but Arizona is also another state where abortion access is not guaranteed as well. So Democrats will be fired up by that as well. And I just wonder in a state that Joe Biden won in 2020, how attacks on democracy like in January 6th would play out in this state. And that same story could also be applied in Georgia because it was Georgia special election in took place a day before all the chaos took place on Capitol Hill. So what's happening in Georgia, Sam? Well, Georgia is another one of those states which has a gubernatorial and Senate race in this cycle. Um, It is Raphael Warnock's um, Senate seat that is up for re-election, seeking his first full term as senator for Georgia. And he's running against former um, NFL player Herschel Walker, who is the Republican candidate in this cycle. And it's this, I think... I don't know if you agree, Chen, has been probably the most high-profile Senate campaign of the cycle, um, mainly due to the fact that Herschel Walker as a candidate is completely scandal-ridden. There has almost been a scandal every day in the last few weeks in this campaign, some um, attaining to paid-for abortions of former partners of Herschel Walker, of absentee- parental absenteeism, of... Um, questions about Herschel Walker's previous police connections, which actually led to a really bizarre moment in the Senate debate where Herschel Walker produced a police badge. So this has been a very high profile race. It's clearly very consequential because Georgia tipped the balance in 2020 and could well tip the balance once more in 2022. And Interestingly, I think had it been John Ossoff's seat that was up for re-election, I think Georgia would have been written off a lot earlier. But because it's Raphael Warnock, who was widely regarded as probably the better candidate in a Georgia context back in 2020, that this has made this cycle a lot more interesting in a Republican-leaning year. I'm curious, Sam. One thing we have seen is that this is two black candidates running against each other in um, Raphael Warnock, of course, and uh, Herschel Walker. One thing, the early voting, and voting is taking place, early voting taking place in many of the states we discussed, is that the proportion of Black voters in Georgia is over 30%. How do you think the Black vote will break down? Because that was significant in explaining why Raphael Warnock was able to get over the Mm. line and was seen as better than in 2020. 
and ultimately what held down David Perdue below 50%. We all know what happened then afterwards. So what do you think, how do you think the black vote's going to break this time around? I mean, I think it's tricky and I don't think it's going to be homogenous. Um, my my gut tells me that the a higher black turnout benefits Democrats, particularly if it's coming from um, Atlanta suburbs as one area, um, because those are the, that's the kind of area that's really helped um, Warnock and Ossoff both get over the line in the 20, January 2021 um, runoff elections for those two Senate seats. But you're also seeing this election the gubernatorial race with Stacey Abrams, who is not, who is underperforming Raphael Warnock, whose entire campaign is basically based on um, access of the black population to voting and, and some of the historic restrictions that have been placed on voter registration in Georgia. So for me, it's interesting to see that those two races are not entirely aligned, which suggests that Warnock's campaign might be built on a bigger coalition than Stacey Abrams. Yeah, you do wonder if it was another um, Republican candidate, what that result would be, to be honest, because if not for Herschel Walker, I just wonder if it would be able to vault uh, whoever the Republican candidate would do a lot better than Herschel Walker is. And he's scandal written. I mean, the, the bizarre thing is that his son, Herschel Walker's son, produced a video denouncing his own father and basically confirming some of the allegations that have been leveled across has been an utterly bizarre Senate election. And I think you're right, it is one of the more high-profile ones. So it is something in which we would definitely be taking a look at on Election Day itself, and one in which uh, voting closes early on Election Day. It's one of the few, first few states to be to, for its polling mm. places to be closed. So we'll get an early indication, won't we, Sam, about how, uh, how Democrats' chances of holding the Senate are, won't we? Yeah, and I think Georgia is is inevitably, I mean, all four of these states we're going to discuss on the Senate side are going to inevitably determine who is going to be in the majority. But if Georgia were to go well for Democrats, I think the odds of the Democrats retaining at least a 50-50 advantage would, would skyrocket, I think. I think it's that close in Georgia that it could make a big difference into the optics of this entire cycle. Actually, more fundamentally, do you think we'll see a result on Georgia? Because obviously, if no candidate gets over 50%, we're going to do this all again, Sam. So are we likely to get a result in November? Yeah, and luckily this year, it doesn't take as long because the, I think the runoff will be held on something like December the 7th. Um, but yeah, I think more than likely, we will be heading to a runoff. Um, so Georgia will be a watch this space moment and once again, could be determining the balance of power in the Senate. Well, deja vu, isn't it? Um, whether them, And that will certainly be one. And I wonder in a lower turnout environment, what will happen against that? We would like to highlight two other further Senate results um, in different parts of the country. So let's return back to the West and talk about Nevada, where we're seeing Democrat Catherine Cortez Mascio is running for a second term and it's up against Republican former Attorney General Adam Laxett. Now, Adam Laxett uh, ran for the governorship four years ago. He was seen as a rising star within the Republican Party. This was Harry Reid's former seat. And Harry Reid was able to build his power in Nevada thanks to an extremely good turnout operation in Clark County, which is, of course, Las Vegas and Hispanic community. It is now six years since Harry Reid 
is no no longer in the Senate and has passed away. So Sam, will the Reed machine bring Cortez over the line or recent trends in how Republicans have performed among Hispanics doom Cortez master in your opinion? Funnily enough, there is a comparison to be drawn between Nevada and Georgia because the two Republican candidates share something in common. Do you know what it is? They both ran for governorship in 2018, one successfully and one unsuccessfully. This is true, but also they both have family members denouncing them and endorsing the opposition because, in fact, we're now at a point where 14 members of Adam Laxalt's family have directly endorsed Catherine Cortez Masto for Senate in this campaign. So that's just one indication, I think, of how hostile this particular election has become. But Nevada is almost the um, the outside option in this cycle, I think, as as to become a really hot contest because Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania are all very closely watched states when it comes to the presidential election in a way that Nevada, at least in recent history, hasn't been to the same extent. Um, and I think that's what makes it even more interesting because Catherine Cortez Masto is facing probably one of the toughest re-election fights out there. Um, and if I were to have to place a bet on what I think is going to be the seat that determines the balance of power, I think the odds of that being Nevada are quite high. Because I would suggest that if Catherine Cortez Mastel loses Nevada, the Democrats' chances of retaining control in the Senate are completely eliminated. Do you agree with that? Well, that is possible. If for what not happened in your last state we're going to talk about, which is Pennsylvania, which could be the Democrats' big chance in trying to retain um, retain a Senate seat. And that's why I've been very careful to start my podcast to talk about net gain of one seat, because there's a possibility for the Democrats to gain one. And we'll talk about that in a minute. I think this seat will be very interesting because um, the early figures from Nevada do not look good for the Repub Democrats. However, that's largely due to the fact that there's largely been a sandstorm through Clark County, which has not helped matters. And early voting has picked up for the Democrats in Clark County itself. I, I wonder if we're in a situation where it will actually turn to what happens in Washoe County, where Reno is, the second biggest city in, in Nevada, for what happens there. So Democrat margins in Clark County matter. But Washoe has swung between Democrats and Republicans in the past, and we could be looking at, again, at another bellwether county to see how the rest mm. of the state performs, really, if it gets that tight. I think this is another state as well where the Senate and gubernatorial races are quite closely intertwined, and the fortunes of one may depend, may determine and depend on the fortunes of the other, because in on the gubernatorial side, Sisolak is facing an incredibly competitive um, race against Lombardo. And the biggest issue in that seems to be um, crime and the democratic response to crime in Nevada. And I wonder if Catherine Cortez Masto might be being disadvantaged by the environment, the political environment being created by that debate in on the gubernatorial side. And it might be disadvantaging her specifically because she's facing Adam Laxalt, who was one of the champions of the Trump campaign to overturn the results of the 2020 election. And he is attorney general. He's coming at it from the perspective of saying, look, I've been inside and I've seen that there is voter fraud that I'm seeking to clamp down on. 
And when you have that kind of rhetoric in the campaign, it makes it very difficult for the campaign to be anything to be about anything but crime, law and order, electoral legitimacy, those kind of things. And Democrats have historically struggled in the in particularly in the West of America when those debates are on the table. Yeah, I was going to say this is again another sense of deja vu because one thing that was blamed for Democrats' poorer performance in congressional races last round was the issue of crime and their response to Black Lives Matter potentially not playing out as one would have thought, really. Um, I'm thinking of all those defund the police ads that the Republicans ran successfully last time around. I wonder if they're repeating sort of that playbook from that. I think one thing that would be very interesting as well is don't forget, you know, the last the Las Vegas is powered by tourism. And this has been a sector that's been devastated by the COVID-19 pandemic. I wonder how hospitality workers, Latino hospitality workers react to and respond over the last two years because they are lower income workers on a sector in a in a sector that has been decimated. So it has it will be interesting to see how how they whether COVID potentially plays indirectly uh negative impact further negative impacts to Democrats here. What do you think, Sam? Yeah, I think that is that is a very plausible argument. And if you look over the history, electoral history of Nevada, you saw Obama win it in 2008 by 12 points. He then won it in 2012 by seven points. Biden, 2020, only won it by three points. So potentially this is a state that is actually trending away from the Democrats in a context of an environment on the West Coast of America where actually the other states are trending more democratic. Well, let's turn our attention to the final contentious Democrat uh, Senate race. And if the Democrats had were worried about Nevada, they have an opportunity in Pennsylvania, where a Republican Pat Toomey is retiring, and the race is between Democratic Lieutenant Governor John Fentiman and celebrity Dr. Dr. Oz. Now, both candidates have had issues during this campaign. John Fentiman suffered a stroke in May and put in quite a poor debate performance just a few days ago. However, Dr. Oz has had other problems, chiefly because he is not from Pennsylvania, and um, John Fentiman has made a lot of play that he's from neighboring New Jersey, which has caused, of course, quite, and coming from a neighboring state has obviously been quite a source of tension that the Fentiman campaign is seeking to exploit. If you had asked me a few weeks ago, this was a certain Democratic pickup, but like Arizona, this Sam, this race has tightened, hasn't it? It's tightened immensely. I mean, there was a period of time where of the four states we've discussed so far, Pennsylvania was seen as the least competitive. It was almost it was seen as almost certain that John Fetterman was going to pick up this seat and then the battle for the Senate would be fought in three Democratic defences. But now it's very much a a four-state race for control of the Senate, of which Pennsylvania is right at the heart of it. And I also think that this Senate race, more than any of the others, is is personifies the state of American politics at the moment, because Mehmet Oz won the Republican primary purely because he was the Trump-endorsed candidate. It was quite a cont- heavily contested um, Republican primary with a plethora of candidates all performing quite well. But Mehmet Oz emerged from it um, with the Trump endorsement and has very much fought on a Trumpian platform in this cycle against a Democrat 
establishment figure in Pennsylvania, a local figure, a figure whose approval ratings historically have been quite high in his role as lieutenant governor. And however, it's exceptionally close, despite the fact that almost universally people recognize that Mehmet Oz is not a good candidate to be senator for Pennsylvania. So this is a fascinating election all round. And if you'd have asked me a week ago, I would have said John Fetterman would pick it up. Now, I'm not entirely sure, but I would lean towards the advantage being with Fetterman. I agree. I think the advantage is still with Fetterman. And I think as well, what is happening is that both in Arizona and Pennsylvania, what you're seeing is that Republican-leaning voters are returning back to the Republican Party. And that is why it's narrowed the gap. Now, that would might have always have happened as we got closer to Election Day, as, you know, as staring the barrel down amongst these Republican-leaning voters, either making the lead to vote Democratic or remaining Republican, they were naturally going to do that in the first place, which makes it automatically tight result in a battleground state. But I think what is also the unknown factor and what is helping John Bethman is that the gubernatorial race is working in reverse compared to what we're seeing in Georgia and Arizona, where both candidates had to run against Republican candidates who are likely to ease, more easily win the gubernatorial race. This time around, Josh Shapiro, the Pennsylvania governor, is like to coast the re-election after Trump, again, endorsed uh, the Republican governor, uh, Dark Mastery, who has proven to be a terrible campaigner. And polls show that in a battleground state, the governor, uh, Attorney General Josh Shapiro, is romping to victory. So, I wonder if John Fentiman is saved by the fact that this time around, the court deals are working in his favour, unlike what is happening to, to Mark Kelly and uh, and Mark Kelly and uh, Raphael Warnock in Arizona and Georgia. No, absolutely. And I mean, we will be keeping very close eye on all four of those states. But Chen, before we close off our Senate part of this bonus episode, I wanted to do some quick fire senate campaigns just three which i think have made headlines throughout the course of this cycle but we don't expect to be particularly competitive so north carolina we've got the retirement of richard burr it's a vacant seat and republican representative ted budd is facing former democratic chief justice of the north carolina supreme court cherry beasley how do you expect that to pan out Democrats have gone close but no cigar in 2012, 2016, 2020 in trying to win North Carolina. They'll probably go close but no cigar here. So Republican representative Ted Budd, what about you? I completely agree. 2020 Senate, I think there were a lot of hopes pinned on North Carolina that did not come up Trump's. And um, in a Republican-leaning environment, I think it's going to be even more difficult to pick up somewhere like North Carolina. Okay, next one, Ohio. Retirement of, again, another retirement, Rob Portman, the moderate, Democrat, the resident, Tim Ryan, who ran for the presidential election in 2020, or Republican J.D. Vance. What do you think? This one's a bit more interesting. I think J.D. Vance will win this election quite comfortably, but what I will say is that I think Tim Ryan has probably been one of the best campaigns of the entire cycle. Um, he's managed to make a race that was almost seen as a foregone conclusion mildly competitive. He's made national headlines and has had some fantastic um, sound bites emerge from his campaign. 
But ultimately, I think the polit the national political environment will just be too much for Tim Ryan to overcome. Same here. I think J.D. Vance will win. My reasoning is that Governor Mike DeWine is popular. Coasting to double-digit re-elections, that would help him. Even though polls do show Tim Ryan here, I do not trust Ohio polls, given my experience over the last two cycles. And thirdly, Tim Ryan... I suspect largely from his background as a congressman from Akron, a very working class community, has ran a campaign trying to appeal to Republicans. The problem is, is that I do wonder if that has negated or will have depressed Democratic turnout in cities such as mm. Columbus, uh, Cincinnati and Cleveland. I wonder if he's also harmed by the fact that he has ran a campaign because he's a congressman from Akron and Youngstown that has appealed to working class Democrats who have recently voted Republican. And the risk is that he has negated the fact he also has the super juice turnout yes. in the three big democratic cities of Cincinnati, Columbus, and Cleveland, which he also needs to win. And so because of all these threats, there's a popular governor, the a fact that uh, polls in Ohio have often wrong, and three is the fact that a potential lack of enthusiasm on the democratic base in the, in the main urban centers would doom Tim Ryan to a narrow election defeat. And finally, Wisconsin. Um, it was potent. It was touted as a potential retirement for incumbent Republican Senator Ron Johnson, but nonetheless, he is running for a third term against Democrat Mandela Barnes. Uh, Ron Johnson will win re-election, and he must be the luckiest senator in the world. That's all my, I'm going to say for this race. What about you, Sam? Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. I think had we seen the retirement of Ron Johnson. I think this Senate seat would have been in our list, um, pre our previous list of seats to very closely watch. But I think the incumbency factor, the Republican environment, the fact that Wisconsin in recent years has been trending more Republican than it had been previously, I think means that Ron Johnson will will survive and potentially quite comfortably. I will say this, though, don't forget, is that of the states that flipped in 2020, you know, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Wisconsin was by far the smallest margin. So it's much more Republican-leaning suddenly than Michigan and Pennsylvania. And I think that, and in particular, what is helping the Republicans is the fact that the counties surrounding Milwaukee, the wild counties as such, is still heavily Republican. Mm -hmm. That hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. So because of that, I mean... And the and the recent more favorable Republican dynamics, I can't see anything but a uh, a Ron Johnson election to a third term. So aside from the battle for Congress, there are also other statewide elections to governor mansions taking place on Tuesday, the November the eighth. Uh, there are 39 governorships on the table in this election, and the national environment at the moment is that Republicans control 28 and the Democrats control 22. In this cycle, Republicans are defending 20, Democrats are defending 16. And we are expecting numerous governorships to change hands in this cycle. Um, and as we've been discussing on the Senate side and as we discussed on the House, we are seeing the statewide electoral environments in a lot of these cases being shaped by the race to fill the governor mansion at the top of the ticket. Um, the Democrats are sure bets to win in Massachusetts and Maryland, but there are quite a, hand, quite a lot of very interesting races for all different reasons taking place across the countries, largely among governors who flipped 
the collar of the governor house back in the 2018 midterms for the first time in a democratic wave year. So like we did on the Senate side, we're going to talk about some races in more detail and then we'll do a quick fire round of some of the other races as well. So why don't we start with the state that we finished with on the Senate side, which is Wisconsin, because Democratic Governor Tony Evers is running for a second term against Republican businessman Tim Michaels, who had previously run for U.S. Senate back in 2004. So what's going on here, Chern? Well, this is the most interesting. This is one of the most interesting uh, governorships up for election. Tony Evers is probably and why Democrats are so concerned about this, because the Republicans heavily dominate the state legislature. And this, he's the one Democratic office holder that is left statewide. And if he falls, we're seeing for the, the potential for Wisconsin to swing to the far right or hard right is incredibly high. Yeah, so that's why a lot of Democrats are looking at a very close eye at Tony Evers, who won a narrow election victory and is said to be a narrow, um, who, and is fighting narrowly for a second term as well. So... I think this is why the stakes are particularly high and Democrats care a lot about this race. But I have to admit, Sam, I'm struggling to pick a side in terms of who will win. What do you think? Because mm. I can see why Democrats are concerned, as, as I mentioned before, but how do you think this will play out? Because on the Senate side, as we say, it was a bit more clear, but this one's a bit more difficult to, to judge, isn't it? I think my gut tells me that it might be a Republican pickup mainly because I think Tim Michaels as a candidate has been quite um, successful. I mean, his background is he is a co-owner of a construction company. He's ex-army. Those are the kind of things that play well in any Republican environment. But the construction side, I think, particularly would play well in Wisconsin because one of the reasons the Democrats lost its base in states like Wisconsin is because they were turning away from the more... Um, construction, industrial side of Wisconsin. I wonder if the Republican candidate in this case has managed to quite successfully tap into that. And generally, I don't think it would come as a particular surprise if the Republicans were to pick this up because it was very, very competitive in 2020 on the presidential side. The 2018 year was a particularly good for the Democrats. They defeated incumbent Governor Scott Walker very narrowly. This environment nationally is much more pro-Republican than that was. And I just wonder if the Republicans once again will take control of the governorship in a state that they've been here, done that before. It wouldn't be unusual. It wouldn't be particularly surprising. I, nonetheless, I think it's going to be incredibly close. But my gut tells me the Republicans might just win this one. Yes, and I think that is the key is this, that the interesting race we've picked up is where they were elected in an environment where the Democrats were a lot stronger nationally. And the reality is that even though these are state races and they're arguably state concerns like education, healthcare, which are more in the primary focus of the state, you cannot ignore the national environment in these, in, in some of these. And some of the states we'll be discussing later on, actually, they often elect governors of the alternative stripe to when the White House is controlled by one party. And this is, and we have seen that take place in, um, in Kansas, which we'll talk a bit about at the moment. But I, I just wonder as well is that, uh, Tony Evers has unfortunate 
for one thing he has going is that he has been elected statewide for many years. He was a superintendent for education, so he has run statewide many times before. But the reality is that his term, because of the fact that the legislature is so heavily Republican, he's haven't had many policy wins on the board. So although he may get a sophomore boost, I just wonder if that in the end will cost him. What do you think, Sam? Yeah, I think I think it is tricky because I think this race will be incredibly close. Um, and yeah, I wonder sometimes incumbency works in people's favor. But in this election, potentially, it might not, because I wonder if he's going to be tied into the kind of cost of living inflation arguments that the Republicans are making in other parts of the country that might benefit his Republican opponents. Indeed. And, and on that note, let's move on to Kansas, as I said earlier, where Democratic Governor Laura Kelly is running for a second term against Republican Attorney Jared Garrett Smith. How do you see this one, Sam? This was always going to be a very tough re-election campaign. But nonetheless, I think Laura Kelly has made a very good fight of it and could actually come out on top in a few weeks' time. It wouldn't be surprising to me if she does win re-election because she has pivoted on some issues to try and be more of a moderate catch-all candidate. Notably, she um, opposed some of Biden's the Biden administration's COVID measures. Um, she did not agree with the requirement for full vaccination of companies with more than 100 employees and that was something that chimed quite well in kansas and she has pretty strong approval ratings they're up in the 50 percents um and i think the the recent ballot measure in kansas where they overwhelmingly voted against saying that kansas's state constitution did not protect the right to abortion could suggest that she is sitting in quite a favorable environment in which to beat um, Derek Schmidt, who has, as the Attorney General of Kansas, has been campaigning against LGBT right expansion, opposing efforts to legalize marijuana, and was one of the leading figures in the campaign to, to say that the Kansas State Constitution did not protect the right to abortion. I ordinarily agree with you, but I'd just like to point out two things. Kansas on the presidential election level is very red. However, its governorship has had a lot of Democrats elected. One of them, of course, was Catherine Sebelius back in the late 2000s, and she later became President Obama's first health secretary. Um, the one question in my mind, which is making me doubt this, is Sam, when was the last time Kansas elected a governor from the same party as the president? Do you know when? The answer is 1986. So she has to run up against quite a lot of history in order to win an election in an environment where the White House is a Democrat. And that's what I mentioned earlier, is that in states like this, there is a blowback against whichever party is in government. And this time around, she's going to face the hoorah. But I think you're right. She could is She is well-placed to make history. And considering how unknown she was in 2018, the fact that She's not often, she's still seen as in the fight. I think it's testament to actually what a good governor candidate she is, actually, isn't it? Mm. So let's move to a slightly different part of the country to a more blue state um, on the presidential level, which is Maine, because Democratic Governor Janet Mills is running for a second term against former two-time Republican governor and immediate predecessor Paul LePage. 
So we talked about the House side of this churn with Maine second, particularly being a Republican leaning, but with a strong Democratic candidate. How do we expect this governor's race to pan out? Well, this is interesting, isn't it? I'm sure there's no love lost, but I think Janet Mills is quite favoured for re-election. I do note that 538 has put her at 92% chance of winning. So actually, of all the 2018 governor uh, candidates who flip races, uh, she is well-placed. I will say this, though. Maine in 2020, um, yes, it's, it's, it's presidential elector split, but Biden won Maine by five points in 2020. So this is a much more democratic leaning states in places like Michigan, Wisconsin, and Kansas, as we know, you know, voted very heavily red, where the Republicans are a natural disadvantage. And it seems like Janet Mills has had a relatively good term as governor, and I do not expect her to have any to have much trouble winning re-election, actually. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And as I alluded to before, I think the it's helping her that both main house districts are seen as reasonably safe at this stage in the game. And bizarrely, I think Susan Collins's successful re-election campaign in 2020, in 2020 also helps because Maine has like a balance and in Susan Collins as a statewide senator, they would retain that even if they retain a Democratic governor. And one thing I will say as well is that Janet Mills is from, uh, she was born in Farmington, which is in Franklin County, the northern part of the state. So having that governor from that northern, more Trumpian part of Maine, I just wonder if that is uh that helps him as well. And Paul LePage was controversial as a governor towards the end. He had his disapproval rating when he left office of 54% was the fourth highest for governors at the time. So he has a lot of baggage and I think that is hurting him in this governor race. So let's talk about somewhere we talked about Senate-wise, which is um, Nevada. Um, we have the Democratic Governor Steve Sisolak running for a second term against Republican Clark County Sheriff Joe Lombardo. So we talked about how close this Senate race is going to be. Do we anticipate this governor race to be just as close? Absolutely. I can't see heads and tails of this one. I think Nevada and the Senate set was so hard to predict. The governor side, I have no idea. And I can't work out any coattails of which might bring the other over the line. I can't see it at the moment. So it seems very much that, I, I just wonder, Sam, in your head, do you see a world in which Catherine Cortez Master wins re-election, but the Republican governor, uh, re they elect a Republican governor, Joe Lombardo? or the other way around. Do you see them splitting their tickets? Or if one is selected, the other will be re-elected? I can't see heads and tails of this one, I have to be honest. Yeah, I, I'm finding this one tricky as well. Um, My gut in this one seems to be that I think whichever way it goes on the governor side, it will also go on the Senate side. I think these might be a, a one in which split ticketing, unless the race is incredibly close and one just happens to go one way where the other goes the other, I think it's more likely than not that the senator and governor will be of the same party um, when we're on the other side of the election after November the 8th. That's just my gut. I think these this race in particular is very closely connected because you have Catherine Cortez Masto's advantage being that she is the incumbent senator, but on the governor side, I think Lombardo has a slight advantage, which is 
because he's been incumbent sheriff of Clark County since 2015, the largest county, he's running on a campaign of safety and security, um, which is chiming very well with Nevadans around the state. And I wonder if both those people are boosting the campaign of the other in a way that will make them intertwined. Yeah, I think that's very interesting indeed. Uh, I think it, it is certainly one in which that I'm paying close attention to and I'm not calling heads and tails of it as well. And he beat you know, a whole list of other prominent Republicans to win the nomination, including former U.S. Senator Dean Heller, for example, uh, former Reno Attorney General, uh, former Reno Attorney and former boxer Joey Gilbert as well. So he has proven his ability to come through and he seems to very much consolidate the Republican base here. So I, I think this one is hard for me to, to, to pinpoint. I think some of the issues that we talked about on the Senate side do apply on the governorship as well here as well. So all to play for here in this in this one. I think of all the ones we highlighted before, this one and Oregon is the one that I totally can't see heads and tails. And let's talk about Oregon because the scenario is that Democratic Governor Kate Brown is term limited. The Democratic candidate is the Speaker of the Oregon House, Tina Kotick, but she's facing against Republican Christine Draken. Now, ordinarily, Oregon is a safe blue state, but the wild card is independent Betsy Johnson. So it's a three-person race. Now, Betsy Johnson has no hope in winning, but it could mean that the Democrats could lose the governorship. And Sam, take a guess, when was the last time the Republicans held the governor house in Oregon? Well, I do know, to put it a different way, is that the last time they won a governor election was 1982, so 40 years ago. Exactly. Yeah, so it's even longer than the Kansas one I was talking about as well. So this one is a fascinating race, and it really shows, again, first, ironically, first past the polls, the impact of third-party spoiler candidates. So, Sam, why don't we bring, give readers up to date about why is mm. Oregon competitive? Kate Brown is unpopular. Is she is is Bessie Johnson taking most of his support from Tina Kotick? Mm. Is that why um, Democrats are just frustrated the governor, or are there other things at play here? Well, we've talked about in this um, in these series of podcasts about some of the big issues in this campaign being economy and abortion. One of the big global issues that we've not really talked about so far, I think, is one of the main drivers of this campaign in Oregon, which is climate change. Um, because one of the reasons this independent candidacy has come about is because it is heavily backed by the timber industry in Oregon in um, outrage to the way the democratic state government is dealing with climate change, deforestation, and its approach to the timber industry, which is heavily, um, which is hugely successful in eastern Oregon, because um, there's a large logging industry there. And Betsy Johnson, who is a former um, Democratic state representative, has um, become unaligned and is running as a complete independent in this campaign to challenge that in the same way that the Republican candidate, um, Christine Drazen, is challenging it as well. Um, and because of Betsy Johnson's historic party links, I think a lot of her vote is coming from the Democratic camp, from Tina Koltek, and that is what is allowing Christine Drazen to fly through the middle and potentially, for the first time since 1982, win this governorship for the Republicans. 
I, I think you're absolutely in I think they're absolutely right that Kate Brown is the most unpopular governor out of all of them. So there really is not there's nothing, there's only so much you can run away from this record. And I kind of think it reminds me of some of the issues of Kansas, if you remember, where Sam Brownback was the governor then. And Laura Kelly, yes, I think was helped in 2018 by the fact that the Republicans controlled the White House, but the Republicans before that in the term made themselves deeply unpopular in Kansas. I wonder if the flip side is playing out here, where the Democrats made some deeply mm. unpopular in Oregon. I mean, money and has played a large role here as well, because Betsy Johnson quite famously has been almost entirely bankrolled by the co-founder of Nike, Phil Knight, who has injected millions of dollars into the Betsy Johnson campaign in Oregon. And it's just made it one of the most fascinatingly surprising competitive governor races of this cycle, which I don't think any commentators were paying attention to Oregon um, six months ago. And now it's one of the most high profile governor races in the country. And it's also unique, isn't it? Three women running to be governor, isn't it? So I don't think you see that, right? I mean, we are seeing more women versus women contests, but this is three women running for the governorship. I don't think I remember a case in suddenly my political memory of the United States of midterms of that happening. So if you had to guess, how do you think this one would go, Sam? My gut tells me that Tina Kotek may just win. Because as often happens with independent candidates, I think people may eventually realize Betsy Johnson is not going to become governor of the state. So I need to make an assessment of who I want to be the governor. And it might be that on election day, some of the Democrats who've in protest suggested they would vote for Betsy Johnson actually come back in significant enough numbers to help Tina Kotek fend off this Republican challenge. Interesting, because I'm. we don't often disagree sometimes, but I'm going to think that the advantage lies with the Republican candidate here. I think Bet, I think particularly in Southern Oregon as well, very more working class Oregon, I think they've gone, they moved further away from the Democrats and a lot of people expect as well. Don't forget, there was a lot of, when the Black Lives Matters protested, some of the issues surrounding that took place. Portland was seen as one of the more crime epidemic hotspots where a lot of racial tensions took place. I think the issue of crime, is also still very much very much um uh, an issue and public safety in general. I mean, for example, Portland recorded an 8% increase in violent crime uh, just uh, from January to the end of August this year. So it's a big issue here, uh, the issue of crime and public safety. No, the Republicans do very well in that. So I think, to me, I would say the advantage lies with Republican Christine Drazen and the Democrats have nobody to blame but themselves. But that is the more detailed discussion. And let's just devote the remaining minutes of this podcast to our quickfire governor rounds. These are governor races we've chosen that are more consequential and important. But nonetheless, I think um, we will probably end up with the same thoughts in terms of who will win. So let's start with Michigan. It's competitive on the house race. We talked about some of the house race. We alluded to in the main podcast, um, some of the um, some of what some of the advantages of certain candidates are, but Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer for one in twenty eighteen is running against Republican Tudor Dixon. Sam, what do you think? I think Gretchen Whitmer will win this comfortably. Um, she is quite quickly becoming one of the more popular national Democratic figures, um, and I think she will in two weeks' time have yet another sizable election victory to demonstrate her big beast credentials.
Yep, the woman from Michigan is going to be cruising towards the second term. And she may even, who knows, in 2024, 2028, be a woman to watch. So all, all, all very interesting. But certainly on the Republican side, uh, in Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis is running for a second term against Democrat Charlie Crist who ironically used to be the Republican governor of the state. Mm-hmm. So, um, but Ron DeSantis is very much a Republican rising star and Sam, easy re-election for him, isn't it? Yes, and I think more attention will be paid to actually the fact that Ron DeSantis has seemingly already begun a campaign to become the Republican nominee in 2024. And I think having a hefty election victory in two weeks' time will um, be used as big ammunition in that fight as well. And notably, he didn't say he would serve out a four-year term. Mm-hmm. And if anything, is in a recent debate, despite asked by Charlie Chris, he phrased it that way, it's clear what his next step would be. I wonder how his political mentor, President Trump, is feeling about that at this stage, given he endorsed Ron DeSantis to put him over the line in Florida. Anyway, two more states quickly. Uh, Texas, um, no term limits. Interestingly, Texas. Uh, Greg Abbott is running for a third term against Democratic representative, and yes, the Beto O'Rourke, the presidential candidate. But I'm afraid it's going to be a nice statewide loss for Beto O'Rourke, isn't it? Yes, I think it will be third time losing um, for Beto O'Rourke. Um, I think at one point this state was seen as something that could be potentially competitive. But I think in a Republican-leaning national environment, as we have right now, I don't think Texas is going to be on the table. And I think actually lower down the ballot, we might see a lot of democratic harm in terms of its um, congressional seats um, being inflicted in Texas as well. I agree. And finally, the one I picked up is Ohio. Uh, Mike DeWine should be easy re-election against former Dayton Mayor Nan Whaley, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yes, I think so. And I think the margin will be wider than the Senate side, where actually Tim Ryan has put up quite a fight against J.D. Vance in a way that I don't think um, former Dayton Mayor Nan Whaley has been able to put up against Mike Devine. Okay, so we've just been through that. Any other governor races you would like to point out? We mentioned it earlier, but Arizona is going to be on my radar because um, Carrie Lake, Katie Hobbs has been quite a close fought race throughout the entire campaign and it will be something we're paying very close attention to even if the headlines are mainly going to be based around the Senate race, which is going to hold balance of power in a way that this governor race just won't. The other one actually is New York, which has become bizarrely competitive in the closing stages of this campaign. Kathy Hochul is running for her first full term um, and seems to be facing quite a tough Republican challenge, despite the fact that the New York Republican candidate um, Zeldin is not a typical Republican New York New York Republican by any means. He's a um, Trump-backed candidate and um, is managing to run this race quite closely. So those are the two others I'm keeping an eye on. Interesting. The one that I'm keeping an eye on is Oklahoma. Um, Oklahoma is a deep red state. Uh, It's just one state south from um, Kansas, which is a Democratic governor. But the reason why I'm keeping a look at Oklahoma is uh, Kevin Stitt has, uh, is running for a second term. Oklahoma has had Democratic governors in its not-too-recent history. It last elected a Democratic governor, in fact, throughout uh, George Bush in 2002 and 2006. He, he had, he had a, there was a Democratic governor in Oklahoma, so there's recent history there. 
uh, but less often than Kansas, it should be said. Um, and the Democratic candidate, Joy Horsmister, is, is a former state superintendent of public instruction. So she has run statewide. Education is a big issue in Oklahoma. The Republican governor, Kevin Stitt, has instituted cuts to that. And Joy Horsmaster has run heavily, strongly against that as the former state in, in superintendent of public instruction. And the one thing I would like to point out is, as well, is um, the other thing I would, um, is that not only is Joy Horsmaster formerly a Republican, she ran, uh, she was elected as Republican in 2014, 2018 before switching. Um, so this is an interesting case. But also, interestingly, she's been endorsed by tribal nations, the Chikori Nation, the Chickasaw Nation, Choco, and so many others, actually. And do you remember, Sam, Oklahoma has been the subject of several Supreme Court decisions, isn't it? If you recall in our Supreme Court reviews, McGitt versus Oklahoma. And there's a lot of anger among the native native population in Oklahoma towards the governor because of some of the, his, his attempts to assert mm. jurisdiction over them. So I think this could be a sleeper rage to watch. So whilst you chose a deep red blue state as someone it could be interesting, I chose a deep <laughs> red state. And so I think that's a nice symmetry to it. And, uh, and, it's, it's, and that's it. That's the end, isn't it? It's been quite a marathon look. But Sam, are you excited as I am to the 8th of November? I'm, I'm very excited. I, I love US midterms. It's so, even in some way, even more than the presidential cycles, because there's so many narratives going on that are not swamped by the overwhelming might of the presidential race. And we could see all kinds of disparate results below the headlines that are absolutely fascinating for American politics moving forwards and, and hugely consequential as well. Um, so I've very much enjoyed previewing these elections and there are so many seats and races that we haven't alluded to that um, will be very interesting indeed. And I'm sure we will unpack some of them when we come back to review the results after November the 8th. But yes, for now, that is it for our special bonus episode of Ballot to Talk About. We hope you've enjoyed the comprehensive review of the midterms and we'll be back at our regular programming time next weekend to bring you up to date on the world of politics and elections from around the world, this time focusing on the national elections in Brazil and Denmark. But in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at at Ballot underscore talk. And please do leave us a rating or review or simply tell your friends about us. My name is Sam, and until next time, we'll speak to you soon. <laughs> <laughs>